This evening's talk is about wise concentration. And we'll begin uh, this evening, uh, the discussion this evening, <coughs> with three Pali words sila, samadhi, panya. Pali words that translate into English as virtual or ethical behavior, concentration, and wisdom. Over his 45 years of teaching, the Buddha spoke many times about these three particular aspects of mind as being the essential and indispensable basis of his own practice. Virtue, concentration, and wisdom or insight. These three form the <clears throat> three branches of mental development that are essential to all forms and schools of Buddhist practice. <clears throat> the development and the combination of the first two of these qualities or capacities of mind and heart, virtue and concentration, are what lead one into vipassana, insight, the deeply penetrative understanding that comes through the three direct meditative uh, experiences, the three liberating insights, that of anicca, the impermanent nature of all mental and physical phenomena. And dukkha, the essential unsatisfactoriness of all worldly mental and physical occurrences. And anatta, the impersonality of all the material and mental phenomena of existence. These are the three profound insights that lead one on to the final liberating wisdom. And as I think most all of you know, concentration plays an important role in the Buddhist teachings. It's one of the seven factors of enlightenment, one of the seven factors of awakening. And those are mindfulness, investigation, effort or energy, joy, tranquility, concentration, and equanimity. It's also one of what are called the five controlling faculties. And those are faith, effort, mindfulness, concentration, and wisdom which, when these five are fully developed, become the five spiritual powers. The Buddha commented that the practice of vipassana, the practice of insight, the practice, the wisdom practice, without the support of samatha, is like sending a minister out to negotiate with bandits without having the protection of a bodyguard. (laughs) 
in the Buddha's words, um, as he often did, he starts with a question and then goes on to answer it. So his question, if concentration, samatha, or samadhi in Sanskrit, <clears throat> is developed, what profit does it bring? And he answers his own question. The mind is developed. And he goes on, if the mind is developed, what profit does it bring? All greed is abandoned, he says. And then he goes on, if insight is developed, what profit does it bring? Wisdom is developed, he says. If wisdom is developed, what profit does it bring, he asks. All ignorance is abandoned. And so concentration, samatha meditation, and vipassana, insight meditation, in particular alternating sequences, are cultivated and developed throughout our practice. And all of this rests on the essential foundation of the gradual process of purification that comes about through the practice and the understanding that blossoms through our exploration of sila, virtue, ethical behavior, with its underlying principle of non-harming. As the teachings and the practices of virtue deepen and as they mature within us, we come to understand through our own very direct experience what brings happiness, contentment, and ease on deeper and more and more profound levels, and what brings suffering, confusion, what brings dis-ease. Ethical behavior and discipline is the basis for the development of samatha, the basis for the development of concentration. The term samadhi, which is Sanskrit, as I mentioned, or samatha, which is the Pali word, refers not only to the achievement of meditative concentration, but also to the cultivation of exceptional mental health and balance. Intimately connected to the understanding that the practice of sila affords us, is the recognition of and seeing our self-identification in relationship to our attractions, which show up as greed, clinging, expectation, attachment, aversion, our long, often long-standing habits of attraction, and our long-standing habits of aversion which show up as worry, resistance, anger, fear, confusion, doubt. These habits of mind are the primary mental and physical phenomena that create suffering and lead to what we could call rebirth over and over and over again in this very here 
and now momentary round of worldly suffering. The, sam- the Pali word for that is samsara. These habits of mind are also what keep us from developing uh, a deep and further purifying concentration. And these ha- habits of mind keep us far from our main goal, that of recognizing the nature of things, recognizing ultimate reality, and consequently keep us from awakening, keep us from liberation. The true nature of things, (coughs) ultimate reality, is rooted in the principle that all mental and physical phenomena, people, mountains, trees, galaxies, New Mexico, Canada, California, dogs, hummingbirds, thoughts, rain, snow, feelings, one's aging body, New York, sunshine, your favorite restaurant, the White House, American Airlines, etc., 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 are understood, are regarded as being without substantial, sustaining essence, meaning as being without any separate, solid, sustaining, graspable self-identity. in order to see the true nature of existing phenomena. We need to purify the mental cloudiness, part the veil, untangle the tangle that keeps us from seeing it. And this occurs through the practices of sila, samadhi, and panya, each of which are rooted in mindfulness. In speaking to one of his uh, chief disciples, Ananda, in the Kimata Sutta, Ananda asks the Buddha a question, and the Buddha proceeds to answer it. And Ananda asks the Buddha, what is the purpose of skillful virtues? What is their reward? And the Buddha responds, skillful virtues have freedom from remorse, as their purpose and freedom from remorse as their reward, Ananda. Freedom from remorse has joy as its purpose, joy as its reward. Joy has rapture as its purpose, rapture as its reward. Rapture has serenity as its purpose, serenity as its reward. Serenity has pleasure as its purpose, Pleasure as its reward. Pleasure has concentration as its purpose. Concentration as its reward. Concentration has knowledge and vision of things as they actually are as its purpose. Knowledge and vision of things as they actually are as its reward. In this way, Ananda, skillful virtues lead step by step to the consummation of liberation from suffering, step by step to the end of suffering. 
And in speaking to his monks and nuns directly about his own process and experience, the Buddha said, it's owing to the development of virtue, concentration, and wisdom that enlightenment has been fully realized. In order for us to learn how to properly apply these three active forces of purification, virtue, concentration, and wisdom, just as the Buddha did, we also need to learn directly from our own experience, and often from some of our more difficult experiences, and sometimes also from what we may deem to be our mistakes, as well as learning from our quieter, pleasant, beautiful, and subtler experiences. We could say that the purification of the mind and heart is synonymous with this act of learning. And so this evening, taking a look at the active force of samatha, concentration, the unperturbed, peaceful, and lucid state of mind attained by the practice and process of a strong mental concentration. The process of gathering in, of gathering together the energy, the potential powerful energy of the mind, which is ordinarily quite dispersed. We could say that the initial act of concentration is that of reigning in the mind from all of its myriad distractions and learning how to focus it by coming back again and again to the simple present so that our mental and our physical energy isn't being used up or usurped in unconscious and unskillful ways. The notion of developing the mind lies at the heart of all Buddhist traditions. And one important aspect of this development has to do with the strengthening of one's ability to focus, to stabilize, and to direct the mind. Rather than allowing it to be carried off and over and over and over again by whatever breezes waft in on it from any of the sense doors or from its own unconscious. So in light of this, we can ask ourselves, does your mind control you or do you control your mind? So, for instance, if your intention is to keep your attention on the breath, but the mind wanders off at the very slightest provocation, then your ability to focus the mind isn't yet very well developed. One of the wonderful things that practice offers us is that remaining focused on a any particular chosen object is a skill that can be learned. Like any other skill, by practice, by patient repetition, and through gradual development. <clears throat> the Vesudhimaga, the profoundly detailed Buddhist treatise on the 
process of purification uses a number of very graphic metaphors to describe the process of this development and the act of concentration. And one of these metaphors that I particularly relate to because of my own experience with making pottery is this. And if you've never made pottery, maybe you've seen someone making it. So you'll have a little bit of sense of it. A lump of clay sits on a spinning potter's wheel. Centering the clay, the potter brings both hands directly onto the clay, holding, staying there with a strong and relaxed focus of attention of mind and body. Staying, sustaining attention and energy. Totally undistracted as the clay is centered on the wheel. Then the potter, with a continued focus of clear, connected, and relaxed attention, with one hand directly on the clay, steadily holding and supporting the clay, the other hand also continuing to sustain contact with the clay, which continues to be the object of attention. The other hand is moving back and forth, up and down, informing the clay at the same time as being informed by it. And a bowl forms. So, quite a graphic and visceral metaphor for the development and process of concentration. The mind, the heart, learning to move into and uh, deepen it with a deepening focus of experience, a deepening focus of experience of concentration. The power of a clear, focused, and relaxed mind a concentrated mind brings together and re-stimulates itself again and again. It re-stimulates the energy and effort needed for the next moment of continuing the process of its own development. We could say that a concentrated mind feeds itself, strengthening its ability to stay present with the object of attention and not attach itself to other things. It's just where it is. Pure, clear, and calm. Quite an energizing, refreshing, and potentially beautiful experience. Because our exploration this evening is primarily devoted to the purifying and beautiful current of samatha, of concentration, I think it would be helpful for us to explore uh, and learn a bit more about the basis, the process, and the fruits of concentration. And some words from B. Allen Wallace, 
a Tibetan Buddhist teacher. He's actually not Tibetan, but he's American, but he teaches Tibetan Buddhism. <laughs> like a telescope launched, launched into orbit beyond the distortion of the Earth's atmosphere, Samatha meditation provides a platform for exploring the deep space of the mind. The wholesome states of concentration, calm, joy, tranquility, happiness, contentment, peace, equanimity, along with the deeper states of concentration called jhana. These, none of these can grow when the unwholesome mind states of attachment, aversion, sleepiness, agitation, worry, and doubt are occurring. Seeing and understanding the difference between wholesome states of mind and unwholesome states of mind is essential for the development and blossoming of concentration and its attendant wholesome states. So, for instance, if you try to concentrate on a meditation subject, such as maybe the sensations of the in and the out-breath at the nostrils, the anapana spot, or maybe the rising and falling movement of the breath in the belly, and you're anxious, worried, or filled with some expectation during the process. Calm and joy will be prevented from arising. Worry and expectation enslave us. With the practice of concentration, one needs to be willing to let go of thought, meaning to not be seduced by thought. One needs to be willing to cut through thought, so to say. Even thoughts that might seem really important in the moment. And it's important, I think quite important to note here, that this is not about kicking out thoughts. It's not about booting out thoughts. Booting out thought is rooted in an attitude of aversion to thought. What's meant here is rooted in a clarity of intention and seeing and knowing when one's attention gets muddled or gets lost in something other than what is intended. And this is really the first and maybe the most important and also maybe the most difficult step of the practice of developing concentration. Our minds can get lost in myriad mundane and seemingly lofty thoughts and actions, thinking that whatever it is, it's really, really important right this minute. I had uh, such an experience during a three-month retreat that was devoted to the development of concentration and jhana that I sat with the Venerable Pawak Sayadaw a number of years ago. <clears throat> For the first week or so of, of uh, uh, that retreat, 
each day after lunch, <clears throat> I would make myself a fancy cup of tea, taking two or three different loose teas and mixing them together in a tea ball. <clears throat> An important and seemingly necessary treat that I needed, that I wanted. <clears throat> Toward the end of that week, I noticed a box of uh, tea bags sitting on the counter that was one of the same teas that I was putting into my fancy mix. And it had been sitting there all along, but the mind hadn't uh, connected to it with any clear awareness at all up until that moment. And so the thought came, do I, re- do I really need this? All this fancy tea preparation and, and seeming need, is this really important? Well, the answer came quite quickly, no. It's not at all important. It's just merely a habitual distraction. So from that day forward, I made a simple cup of tea with the tea bag that was sitting in the box, and I drank it with pleasure. It was good enough. What happened after this what was, was what was really important. <clears throat> Quite spontaneously, uh, at times through the rest of this three-month retreat, the question would come up, is this really important? It would come up in relationship to various mundane actions and in relationship to various thoughts and thought patterns. Is this really important? And the answer was almost always, if not pretty much after a while, 100% of the time, quite clearly and more and more obviously, no. And I would, at that point, then just simply let go of whatever it was. So again, the development of a wholesome concentration requires of us that we have insight of some depth and a growing interest and understanding regarding the difference between wholesome and unwholesome states of mind. And one of the most wonderful and amazing fruits that inevitably occurs through the process of developing concentration and mindfulness is that the mind, the heart, are constantly being purified of the various permutations of greed, aversion, lethargy, restlessness, doubt, all of these classically called the hindrances in the Buddhist teachings. Classically, the development of concentration, and for some people, at some point, jhana concentration, is described as the purification of the mind. And again, as the Buddha said, the mind is developed. Samatha, or the development of calm and concentration, seriously weakens all of the hindrances, seriously weakens all of these unwholesome states of mind. In the moments when calm and joy and tranquility blissful happiness, contentment, peace, equanimity, 
these fruits of concentration practice, when they clearly man- in the moments when they clearly manifest, unwholesome states of mind in those moments are temporarily completely eliminated, as well as considerably weakened in the long term, over time, particularly as one's concentration develops and deepens. So, taking a bit of a look <clears throat> at how the different factors of uh, a growing and deepening concentration quite specifically address different states of mind and body that can hinder the development of concentration and that also hinder the blossoming of insight. So, to begin with, overall calm and the development of a more tranquil body and mind is an antidote to feeling perturbed, obviously. Calm and tranquility free the mind, free the heart from impurities and inner obstacles, giving the mind a much greater penetrative strength, much greater penetrative possibility. The mental state of originally applying, or initially, I should say, initially applying the mind, aiming and uh, applying the attention uh, again and again to a particular object. And the word for this in Pali is vitaka. And then with the establishment of the mind on the attention, such as maybe the sensations of the in and out breath at the nostrils, or maybe the rising and falling movement of the breath in the belly. This eventually eliminates dullness, sleepiness, and stiffness. The sustained application of the attention, the sustained application of the mind, a continuous sustained attention on the object, again, such as the breath, is a simple example. In Pali, the word is vichara. This eventually, temporarily, eliminates uncertainty and doubt within the practice. And it weakens these afflictive states to some degree overall. A deeply concentrated and mindful state of joyful zest, a kind of bright happiness, a kind of elation in the mind, resulting from the developing purity of the heart, the developing purity of the mind. The Pali word for this is piti. And this brings a delighted interest in and liking of the object of attention. Again, such as the breath. And with the development of a deepening concentration resulting with, in varying degrees, types of degrees and types of experiences of PT, this will uh, temporarily inhibit the... um, will temporarily inhibit ill will. It will not be present during those times.
if one is inclined towards jhana concentration with the first and second jhana in a very deeply absorbed state of concentration there's much delight and much liking of the object of attention which is actually one aspect of the direct experience of jhana itself and at this point all forms of ill will are completely temporarily inhibited. It's temporary at this point. And the deeply concentrated state of bliss or a sense of contentment, a sweet, easeful kind of happiness. The Pali word for this is sukha, which in its maturity is actually not a pleasant bodily feeling, but a blissful, contented mental feeling. And when this occurs to varying degrees within deepening concentration, restlessness, agitation, (coughs) regret, and worry are temporarily completely eliminated. And lastly, the steady, undistracted attention of the one-pointed focus of a deepening concentration, and the Pali word is ikagata. With this occurring to varying degrees during the development stages of concentration and mindfulness, you're all experiencing this to varying degrees now. This one-pointed focus of attention is the experience of a clear, strong, and pervasive energetic centeredness, balance, equanimity. And during this time, when it's really clear and strong, sensuous desire for anything is actually inhibited. It's at bay. You're just present with what is this concentrated, for instance, focus on the breath. As samatha or samadhi or concentration develops and as it moves along, the states that corrupt the natural purity and the luminosity of the mind and heart, when at least some of these imperfections, these afflictive states, which also include clinging and self-identification to pleasant and other habitual states of mind and body, when at least some of these have been clearly let go, temporarily abandoned, temporarily relinquished, at that time, one really truly knows and gains a much fuller and deeper confidence in and connection to one's own practice. And when this confidence arises, the mind and heart often experience great inspiration, enthusiasm, and appreciation connected to the Buddha, to the Dhamma, and to the Sangha, and to one's particular teacher. As awakening beings, 
when we begin to directly experience and to know ourselves as purified of unwholesome states, when we directly experience and know ourselves as at least partially liberated from them, a great and wholesome gladness and gratitude is born in us. And with the blossoming and the maturing of this gladness, a joyful zest and the taste of a wholesome elation, which is sometimes the word rapture is the definition for this, is born in us. With this joy and the knowing of it, and this very important, without any attachment or personal identification in those moments, the body and the mind eventually become very tranquil. With the maturing of tranquility, both the more overt and the subtle bodily and mental disturbances that are connected with gladness and joy, those are removed. They disappear in the calm and the quiet. They disappear in the serene pleasure of tranquility. When we experience tranquility, we feel pleasure. When pleasure is felt, and again, very important, without any attachment and without any identification in those moments, the mind is then prepared for deeper concentration. And of course, the whole process must be accompanied by a connected, non-analytical, sustained, mindful presence. Another way of saying this is that a deeply concentrated mind is a purified mind which opens the heart to wholesome gladness and gratitude with no attachment. This brings the serene pleasure of tranquility which is the ground for deepening concentration. And on it goes. Consequently, at this point, the mind and heart are very strong. And so in this light, the skill that's being developed is one's ability to resist or to deflect the influence of what in Pali is called raga. And it's literally translated as unwholesome passion. And it's often used synonymously with greed, with unwholesome desire, craving, attachment, and clinging, which is really the core cause of our human suffering, the core cause of dukkha. At the time of the Buddha, an analogy that was often used Uh, regarding this aspect of the development of the mind was that the effectiveness of a well-thatched roof lies in its ability to deflect moisture and protect the contents of the house from getting soaked. With the analogy being that a well-developed mind 
will be aware of an unwholesome thought or an unwholesome e- or emotion that has arisen and will uh, uh, or will be, a- be also aware of any provocative sense input but will allow these to just roll off the mind and not penetrate into the immediately following mind moments to drench the mind with clinging or drench the mind with aversion. A similar image often used was that of water rolling off a lotus leaf or off the feathers of a duck. The nature of concentration is threefold. Or in other words, there are three types or three levels, we could say, of concentration that can develop and that also serve our insight practice. And the first of these is what's called kanika samadhi in Pali. Translates as momentary concentration. This is the development and growing maturation of one's ability to focus on one object after another object after another object. The development of our capacity to clearly connect with one object, then another object, then another object, one by one, and ongoing, moment by moment. A good example of this is meant to practice, actually. The cultivation of one's capacity for momentary concentration is really essential for insight practice, essential for vipassana practice. The second type or level of concentration is called upachara samadhi, or translated as excess concentration, often translated as neighborhood concentration. And this is a very deep and powerful concentration that occurs just before one moves into absorption or jhana concentration. And it can be reaccessed and used for insight practice upon coming out of the absorption of jhana. Excess concentration is often experienced as similar to the intensity and depth of absorption concentration, but it's not absorbed. It's not an absorbed state. It's not absorbed concentration, meaning that it doesn't stay focused on one object at the exclusion of other objects, as does jhana or absorption concentration. With upachara, with excess concentration, the mind is very malleable. It's able to move from object to object, even though it might usually contain somewhat close to the same intensity as a deeply absorbed uh, jhana concentration. So from this perspective, access concentration can be very, very helpful Uh, and very useful in the unfolding of insight practice. The third type or level of concentration is absorption concentration. 
and what's often called jhana. This is a concentrated mind that completely absorbs into one object at the exclusion of all other objects. When the mind is absorbed in this way, it's not possible for the mind to do anything else at that time. And at this time, with the development of uh, any of these levels of concentration, but particularly with access and the uh, jhana concentration, absorbed concentration, unwholesome states of mind are considerably weakened in the long run, though they are not totally and finally eliminated at all. It's really only through vipassana, it's really only through insight practice that unwholesome or afflictive states are totally eliminated. The development of concentration quite naturally takes place in our vipassana practice, in our insight practice, particularly momentary concentration especially when we begin to be able to meet all of the various body-mind phenomena with less and less clinging, less attachment, less identification, but rather with an interested, open-hearted, investigative attitude. The development of jhana and access concentration takes a very specific and concerted effort That's not everyone's inclination or interest. And it's not absolutely necessary at all for a potentially liberating vipassana, insight practice, to unfold. The achievement of jhana concentration may require many months or even many years of single-pointed Meditating practice, meditation practice for many hours each day. And this certainly may uh, be impractical for some people. And for others, maybe it's possible and maybe worthwhile in moving towards the discoveries that lie in wait for us when we apply the telescope of samatha to explore the deep space of the mind. As concentration develops, slowly we gain the wisdom and the confidence to allow ourselves to wholeheartedly meet experience with no self, no me, no I, no I am, while at the same time being clearly present and mindfully aware of what's taking place with no pondering, no commentary, no thinking about what's occurring and not making something out of experience. But rather receiving, sensing, seeing, and knowing experience just as it is. 
So in this slide, I'd like to share a simple and potentially illuminating story uh, uh, about two significant times and aspects of the Buddha's life. After six years of engaging in extreme austere practices and finding that, in fact, they weren't bringing the liberation of heart and mind uh, that he was seeking, it's said that the Bodhisatta, Siddhartha Gautama, asked himself, could there not be another path to enlightenment? And in reflection with this inner questioning, an image, the memory of a particular experience from his childhood appeared to the Buddha, or he wasn't the Buddha yet, appeared to Siddhartha. And he remembered a particular spring day when he was a boy of six. That morning his father had taken him to the spring plowing festival, a time uh, each year when the, all the men in the community, rich and poor alike, came together for a day of plowing up the earth, an annual ritual marking the beginning of the spring planting season. Young Siddhartha, quite spontaneously and naturally, sat up in the meditation posture comfortably and quietly under a sweet-smelling rose apple tree. Observing the scene that was unfolding before him with a very open, alert, and unfettered attention that children sometimes give to things. Really nothing much at all on his mind. In those moments of not wanting or fearing anything, he was aware of the earth breaking open in wave-like furrows, noticing the heat shimmering up off the freshly opened soil. He was aware of the shining on the sweating faces and straining bodies of the men and the oxen. And he noticed the flash and sparkling of sunlight coming off the bronze harnesses and the dark horns of the oxen. He felt the plodding rhythm of the oxen's hooves and the cowbells rolling on and on amidst the strong, sharp shouts of the men as they worked. He also clearly heard the beautiful sound of birdsong, as well as the shrill cries of the birds as they dove and pecked and devoured the swarming insects, the grubs, the worms, and the broken bodies of the mice that were left out on the upturned soil. All of this laboring, devouring, struggling, suffering, and dying, endlessly going on beneath and right along with the gaiety, joy, and beauty of that spring festival day. All of this entered into young Siddhartha's heart and mind as he sat alone, clearly focused and deeply relaxed under the sweet-smelling rose apple tree, open-heartedly experiencing the scene that was going on before him.
and in his mind, fighting, finding no resistance, no tension, no inner conflict, nothing to add, nothing to take away. As he silently sat, quite still and secluded from sensual pleasures and unwholesome states of mind, taking all of this in without prejudice and without any attachment, and finding himself all alone, he quite spontaneously and naturally attained a deep state of concentration. It said it was the first jhana, through mindfulness of breathing. Experiencing a very bright, sweet pleasure and joyful happiness that was not born out of desire for or clinging to anything. And in his young mind, a deep, intuitive understanding was seeded As a young man, in the midst of practicing extreme austerities of body, and then remembering this boyhood experience, the thought occurred to Siddhartha. Could that be the path to enlightenment? And it's said that following on this memory from his childhood, the bodhisattva became filled with energy and a sureness that in fact this was a footstep on the path. A footstep on the path to liberation. And he resolved then to sit quietly and to press forward in deep meditation until he reached full understanding, until he reached true freedom. This was a turning point for the Buddha to be in his quest for awakening, in his quest for liberation, for enlightenment. This was a turning point and a change in his relationship to suffering and his evaluation of pleasure. He understood that pleasant experience was no longer to be feared and banished by the practice of extreme austerities. At that most important point of turning in his quest for liberation, Siddhartha realized that the confusion, the misunderstanding, and the delusion, the greed, anger, anguish, and hatred, all of the dark and afflictive states of mind wouldn't be and in fact couldn't be purified, banished, released or relinquished by creating hardships for oneself and then putting up with them or by trying to live through them by stealing and hardening oneself and then toughing it out in relationship to these self-inflicted hardships or by trying hard to let go of the painful mind states related to extreme, austere practices. Or by trying to lose one's self 
in self-created physical and mental hardship. And if you consider your own life, how many times in small, even in tiny ways, or possibly even in extreme ways, have you, out of ignorance, out of delusion, out of misunderstanding, been attracted to and chosen to engage in mental fantasies? various situations, activities, various relationships that created hardship or maybe a certain flavor of austerity in your life and maybe at times even extreme austerity, extreme hardship. So in your own way, doing just what the Buddha did and thinking just as he did that these situations, fantasies, activities, or relationships would somehow bring a sustaining joy, happiness, and ease into your life. Potentially, a certain degree of mental strength certainly uh, might be gained. But the light at the end of the tunnel the light of liberation can never really be seen, felt, or known with this way. As a young man, in remembering his childhood experience, Siddhartha realized that pleasure was no longer to be feared and banished through the practice of extreme austerities that this would never really bring a sustaining sense of freedom and well-being. He understood that when pleasure is born internally, with a mind, a heart, that's secluded, that's free from the mental and bodily hindrances of lethargy, restlessness, greed and clinging, free from the various permutations of aversion, confusion, or doubt. He understood that when pleasure is born of seclusion, clear, concentrated, and mindful presence, and detachment, that it's not only okay, but that it's a valuable and necessary accompaniment along the path liberation and that it in fact points to the sustaining happiness of a heart of a mind that's no longer run by the energies of greed clinging, fear judgment, anger and confusion that in fact it points to the sustaining happiness and ease of a heart a mind that's liberated, that's awakened. In remembering his childhood experience, the Bodhisattva Siddhartha came to understand that the development of deep concentration, and for him, jhana, 
is a footstep on the path to awakening. An important and useful footstep on the way to liberation. And as the Buddha expressed it in the Majjhima in his discourse to his student Sakaka, he said, I thought, why am I afraid of that pleasure that has nothing to do with sensual pleasures and unwholesome states? I thought, this is still the Buddha talking, I thought, I'm not afraid of that pleasure since it has nothing to do with sensual pleasures and unwholesome states. And then the Buddha goes on to tell Sakaka that at that point he made this decision to stop engaging in extreme austere practices. And that very soon after this he was offered some solid food by a young village girl and he regained his strength. And then he went and sat in meditation under a Bodhi tree. And he goes on speaking with Sakaka, saying that being quite secluded from sensual pleasures and unwholesome states, he entered into the deep concentration of the first, second, third, and fourth jhana. And that with each of these pleasurable abidings, and in the Buddha's words now, but such pleasant feelings that arose in me did not invade my mind and remain. When my concentrated mind was thus purified, bright, unblemished, rid of imperfection, malleable, wieldy, steady, and attained to imperturbability, meaning equanimity, he tells Sakaka that he systematically attained each of the liberating insight knowledges one by one, through that now famous night under the Bodhi tree. As a child, this natural state of an undisturbed mind is something that young Siddhartha wandered into, so to say. The world outside going on just as it is. Thoughts and feelings arising and changing, coming and going. No different in those moments than anything else in the world. Nothing to agree with, nothing to argue with, nothing to cling to, and nothing to push away or run from. And yet, this natural state of an undisturbed mind isn't so easy to wander into for most of us. We often have a mind made up and often absolutely made up about how it's supposed to be, how it isn't supposed to be, what's good, what's bad, what we absolutely definitely know is true or isn't true. And we also often have a mind made up about what we must have or must not have in order to be happy and even in order to practice meditation. A mind made up. A mind that clings to what it's made up. This is what prevents us from directly clearly and honestly meeting the moment we're in. 
keeping us in conflict, keeping us shut off from the vastness of possibility, keeping us shut off from the possibility of wandering into the natural state of an undisturbed mind. This is essentially the cause of our suffering and what prevents the heart, the mind, from calmly and peacefully connecting directly and clearly with present moment experience, both internal and external experience. As I mentioned earlier in this discussion, the teachings and practices that we've inherited from the Buddha fall into three basic currents. The current of sila, the teaching and practice of ethical or virtuous conduct, the current of, and the current of samadhi, the teaching and practice of concentration, and the current of panya, the teaching and practice of wisdom. These three currents are what carried the Buddha and what carry us along and across the great and often quite challenging river of life. They carry us to the other side, to the side of a peaceful, easeful, awakened presence, to the side of living within the natural state of an undisturbed heart and mind. The current of samatha, the development of concentration, is a beautiful, healing, and powerful experience in and of itself. And at whatever level one is able to develop a concentrated mind, from the perspective of the Buddha Dhamma, it is ultimately and essentially to be used towards our main goal, that of seeing the true nature of existing phenomena, parting the veil, untangling the tangle that keeps us from seeing it, so that we in fact recognize the nature of things, that we recognize ultimate reality, and awaken out of the sleepy cloud of delusion. Our practice is really about the unification of samatha and vipassana. And again, some words from B. Allen Wallace. He says, The transformative power of Buddhist meditation occurs when the stability and vividness of samatha is unified with the penetrating insights of vipassana. Samatha by itself results in a temporary alleviation of the fundamental causes of suffering. And vipassana by itself provides only fleeting glimpses of reality. And so, as awakening beings, here we are today. More than 2,500 years later after the story that I've just shared. And thanks to Siddhartha Gautama's diligent and 
powerful years of practice. Here we all are, exploring and learning from his direct experience and the inspiring and amazing gift and clarity of his ability to pass it on to others. In closing the talk this evening, I'd just like to say that it's essential that you hold your practice in the light of honesty, humility, and a diligent, open-hearted interest. And hold yourself within your practice with deep kindness and patience. Each and all of these wholesome and beautiful qualities will without a doubt serve the blossoming of sila, samadhi, and panya. And without a doubt are some of the most basic roots and forces of purity that the fruits of our practice stem from. In closing uh, this evening's talk, another Mary Oliver poem (laughs) that speaks uh, to this evening's topic um, in her quite unique and beautiful way and in relationship to this evening's topic in a somewhat oblique and yet very moving way. The title of this poem uh, by Mary Oliver is Such Singing in the Wild Branches. It was spring, and finally I heard him among the first leaves. Then I saw him clutching the limb in an island of shade with his red-brown feathers all trim and neat for the new year. First I stood still and thought of nothing. Then I began to listen. Then I was filled with gladness, and that's when it happened, when I seemed to float, to be myself, a wing or a tree, and I began to understand what the bird was saying, and the sands in the glass stopped for a pure white moment while gravity sprinkled upward like rain rising. And in fact, it became difficult to tell just what it was that was singing. It was the thrush for sure, but it seemed not a single thrush, but himself and all his brothers and sisters and also the trees around them, as well as the gliding, long-tailed clouds in the perfectly blue sky. All, all of them were singing. And of course, yes, so it seemed was I. Such soft and solemn and perfect music doesn't last for more than a few moments. It's one of those magical places that wise people like to talk about. One of the things they say about it that's true is that once you've been there, you're there forever. Listen, everyone has a chance. Is it spring? Is it morning? Are there trees near you? And does your own soul need comforting? Quick then, open the door and fly on your heavy feet. The song may already be drifting away.
And let's sit quietly together for just a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.